Hi everyone, welcome back to Roll for Enterprise, the podcast described as the squishy heart at the center of enterprise IT. This week we're all together for the first time in a little while, uh, so welcome back everyone. We wanted to do a quick uh, news roundup because, as usual, there has been a lot going on. People are trying to get all the news out of the way before the holiday season starts. So Fastly made a lot of headlines in the sort of way you don't really want to make headlines uh, by having a big public outage and taking out huge chunks of the internet. I dropped a link in the show notes from The Guardian, which was actually one of the sites uh, that was taken out. Interestingly, another one was Amazon. It turns out Amazon uses Fastly instead of CloudFront. That must have been an awkward conversation. Uh, or or maybe meeting. they use both. Maybe they use both. Let's be fair. Because <laughs> they, right? they were the first one back up. So maybe they use both. I don't know. Yeah, could be, could be. And someone did say they probably had the mother and father of all SLAs because they were the very first site to come back up. They were only down for a matter of minutes. And yep. most of the other affected sites were down for a good hour. So who knows? Um, but one analysis point I wanted to to bring up, uh, I've seen it mentioned in a few places, but the first place I saw it was from uh, my old colleague and Lilacs, uh, John Stevens-Hall, uh, who is still at BMC. And he published a post, which we'll drop here, uh, talking about, does the fastly outage justify single point of failure headlines? And I think it's interesting. It points out, you know, people would say it's bad to have a, just a single point of failure for huge chunks of the internet. It fastly goes down, a bunch of the internet is offline. But in the real world, it's he it makes a good point. Everything came back up pretty promptly, and long-term consequences have been effectively zero. While it would have been hugely expensive for any one of these players to build their own thing, and it would also have probably resulted in more and more widespread outages over time than this one pretty brief and circumscribed outage. What do you think, Mike, maybe you first, uh, from your point of view as a potential buyer of this and this sort of service? I mean, uh, yeah, not the kind of uh, area that I, I dab in, but I mean, their uptime is still fantastic, right? I mean, it's, I mean, when did you ever hear about a Fastly outage? This is the first one, right? And in terms of, now maybe they need to update their resiliency or whatever you you might want to call it, but overall, I mean, I think you know they were back up within forty five minutes, I think thirty eight minutes or something. So I mean, overall, you look at it, it's it ain't that bad, right? I mean, and I think one of the surprises, yeah, still is better than people, four nines. Yeah, still better than four nines exactly, unless they have another outage within the next year, which could be, mm. but. Uh, but I think what's impressive is, I mean, look how many big companies use them. I mean, the amount of companies that went down was fairly impressive. So they must have something right, right? And and Amazon is using them while having their own CDN. So it's still quite impressive, I think. Um, yeah, what do you do if you're one of those companies? That I'm not sure about. And I, I'd like to hear the others' take on that. Like, if you are a customer of Fastly, what do you do? I mean... You feel proud, or or do you look at alternatives? Do you look at diversifying? I, I don't know. Look, it's it's no different than the outages we would have on-prem. As a matter of fact, years and years ago, I'm going to date myself, I used to install these Cisco web cache engines. They're the same thing. You had them on-prem. They, they would speed up web page, you know, uh, you know, proxy web pages, so you can speed up, you know, save on bandwidth. So we're just having these outages in the quote-unquote cloud. I mean, this is no different. We've had these outages for 20, 25 years. I mean... 
what's what are we uh, what are we talking about here? I mean, the single point of failure. Oh, everybody, all this internet's down. Well, the internet's being built like the internet's being built like uh, you know, like like networks were built, you know, in in the past. I mean, there's always going to be an outage. I think you said it, Dominic. It's there's always a point of failure. I think it's the visibility now, right? Like if it was one company on it, like if it was just uh, let's say the Guardian that went down. Probably not one headline would have been would have been oh the Guardian was down for forty five minutes who cares, but the fact that so many websites went down is what I guess so yeah raised is, all is, the headlines right is that a fault of so are you telling me that the architecture of the cloud has a problem? No, I don't think so. I think it's just what we're what we need to be um, expecting immune to. And I think exactly. that's how that's how I would exactly. put it. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I, I don't know why these aren't sort of I'd like to see the model our mental model for this mutate because I know that we we sort of think of the cloud and the architecture as um something that could be optimized to like 879s and and that we have perpetual uptime and and that basically we're all running the ER of the of the world on the internet right um but I also feel like maybe the right analogy isn't actually mission critical running a pacemaker for for business but but actually looking at it more like weather patterns, right? Like we mitigate as much as we can with tornadoes and hurricanes and all these other things. But at the end of the day, they shut down cities and businesses and life episodically. And if we can make that pain short term and the recovery rapid, that you're, ne- you're just not going to get rid of the hurricane that is going to shut down Houston for a week every year, regardless of what happens, right? And, and you're not going to get rid of the earthquake that is going to randomly hit California. And so to me, I feel like maybe the model needs to be more of like inevitable, let's mitigate the downtime and the impact of it, which sounds to me like what Fastly did here. Yeah, exactly. And the positive outcome for Fastly was it kind of highlighted how widespread they are. Because I mean, I'd heard of Fastly before, but I follow this stuff. Lots of people are like, Fastly who? And... It's kind of underlined just how widespread and how much of the internet they underpin. And their stock on the day was actually up uh, 10%. It's since uh, dropped back down a little bit, but it hasn't collapsed. It's I think it will be good marketing for them long term because it was such a brief outage. They recovered so quickly, so transparently. Uh, they've also been pretty transparent in their post-mortem. They said it was, uh, they didn't throw the intern under the bus. Uh, <laughs> lots of companies could take <laughs> notice. They they said, you know, that we had a software issue and it was uncovered by one particular customer who did something unexpected. That's on us. It's fixed now. And that's kind of the best you can expect. And you can't expect, you know, not picking on The Guardian, but uh, a news organization like The Guardian to build up this kind of CDN at worldwide scale with this kind of reliability for the sort of money that they would no doubt paying fastly in fees. That's just not going to happen. So, yeah, I, I think I agree with John's take here. Yeah, and the, the analysis on the stock was at first like, wow, if all these companies are using Fastly, they must be great. So money plowed in. And then after that, it was like, well, they're probably going to lose customers. But are you really going to lose customers from an outage like this? I mean, it, it's expected, right? And I think I think the impressive side is like they were back up in less than an hour. I mean, some places could have really uh, taken a, a pretty big hit. And, and uh, I, I think to your point, Dominic, when they said like, yeah, you know, one customer did something that exposed like a bug. Um, 
I mean, just to say something like that and to have that analysis rather quickly, it, it just shows how uh, how well they understand um, their whole stack, right? So I think it was, yeah, hats off a, a good display by Fastly, to be honest. Exactly. It was pretty impressive. The one thing that was... Uh that was also interesting coming out of this was uh, another blog post, which again, uh, drops in the show notes about the error messages, because, you know, the, the four of us, we look at a uh, error 503. We know what that means. Roughly. We can figure that out. And it's true though, that for civilians that may not work quite so well. Uh, if you get, first of all, you see this uh, serif text on a website, black on white. That's not how the web looks anymore. And so the, this uh, this person who I don't know, is a bit, the recommendation is we should be writing better error messages that are more human readable so that people know, is it something I did? Is it something they did? What do I do about this? Do I just wait? Do I have to do something different? And I think these are all very good points and to bring up. You know, they, We're paying attention to this blog because it seized on the fast issue, but something we could probably all bear in mind as we design software, as we manage uh, the the creation of pieces of software, it, it's got to make sense for its intended user population. HTTP error messages are designed for web developers, and web developers can read those. But this sort of situation highlighted that it's not just web developers who see those error codes these days. But I think there's a bit of fun there for the developers. I I, I don't know, like. The error yeah, message guru meditation, Deutsch. yeah, yeah, Dogecoin <laughs> to the to the moon, and everybody would have been like super happy, right? I, I, I mean, it is what it is. I, yeah, you make the error message better, sure, but yeah, it it really doesn't matter. I mean, your your product isn't working. And I, I don't know how many people actually read it, but just just gloss over it. And, and typically, people are, I mean, I, I think most people are conditioned to go to either down detector or search the web to see if there's a, a bigger underlying issue. And that's typically what happens, right? I mean, I think that's for us, honestly. I think that the average individual, like that, that's great for a, for a nerd. Um, but like, and even I, I'm just like, well, site must be down. Okay. Like, I, I, there's not, I, I think my, my mom would never, like she would begin to reboot her phone or her iPad and see whether it was her problem. Right. And I, right. Um, I, I think that, and, and we all sort of do this, right? Like, I think, I think we pretend like we're really cool, but then on the other hand, how often have you blamed the headset and said the headset must be broken when it turns out WebEx had a problem, right? Like it, it, it's, I think there's just, we are tuned to believe that the point of failure that we can see in front of us is the point of failure that is broken. Um, and the truth is in the internet, there's like only 300,000 points of failure behind the headset. Um, and, and so I think for the average user, like Slack actually does a great job with this. When, when something goes wrong in Slack or where something is not as expected, they, they sort of give you a, a cute icon and a, and a human readable message that just basically, yeah, it, good example. It, it feels clear. It feels clear, but most companies probably don't have that culture. Yeah. And let's be clear. This is not a, it's not an internet issue and the internet definitely, you know, but you're right. It's a services issue and fastly had an outage. And I agree with that. Everyone's saying, I mean, they, uh, yeah, they recovered quickly and a yeah, big deal. I mean, just because I couldn't get to Amazon didn't mean I was going to get my car and go to Walmart. You know, I just tried it back later. Yeah. I mean, funnily enough, the way I first realized that this was going on was I was using the Twitter web UI, which is not something I do that frequently, actually. And all of the emoji were broken because Twitter doesn't use the system emoji. It remaps them to little images that it serves, turns out, through Fastly CDN. 
So Twitter was up. I could read everything, but all the emoji were missing, uh, which is kind of a weird symptom to see. Uh, it is what it is. Um, but bridging now, now that, that is some, now, now that is something they will fix, right? That that that's something that that they'll, they'll look at fixing. But yeah, the wider spread, I don't think they will. So they'll, they'll continue to use fastly. But I, I would imagine see, there. I wish they just fix it. it by backing out that feature and removing it. I don't know why they do that. I want to see my system level emoji. I don't know why Twitter's emoji have to look different. I hate apps that do this. It's like the share the share sheet in iOS. There are a bunch of apps. Twitter once again, yes, let's <laughs> diss Twitter. Uh, it has to use a different share sheet and it adds a click or a tap to get to the actual system level share sheet, which is the one that I want. Why? Why do that? Why <laughs> expend developer hours on re-implementing a system feature worse? That- I, I have so many, uh, so many things to say, but it's all politically incorrect. So there you go. Well, I found out this week that there's actually an emoji I didn't realize that's broadly used, which is a feather duster. And firstly, it's unidentifiable as a feather duster. And I interpret it as um, the emoji that you would use when you say when you would say the words 10 points from Gryffindor. That's a bad pun or a bad joke. Like, right. Like, I acknowledge that you made a terrible pun. Um, groan. Here's your feather duster. And I don't understand this, but I've decided that it's because I'm old. Um, I have no my idea. My Twitter search is sure. not finding <laughs> anything feather duster. Really? Duster? No, also nothing. No. Huh, amazing. Um, well, maybe this is unique to a little subculture I seem to be part of. <laughs> feather duster emoji. I'm getting an autocomplete. For... Oh, okay. I kind of see what you're talking about. Is this going yeah. to turn out to be like an aubergine thing? I hope not. I hope it just stays nice and clean. Eggplants for I'll have another eggplant <laughs> joke in my life. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. More research required. <laughs> With uh, Safe Search on, probably. On. Definitely on. <laughs> uh, but uh, one thing that does come up very often when there are these outages is talk of error budgets, uh, which is a concept from SRE. We've mentioned it on the show before. Uh, when uh, when we had Brian Singer uh, from Noble Nine on, and we're talking about SLOs and uh, uh, and SRE and these types of things, so the error budget is the idea that you have a certain amount of error or outage to spend in the course of a year, and you should spend it wisely. Uh, and if you've spent it all, then you have to make sure that you don't have any more errors or outages, etc. So this has been kind of accepted because it came out of SRE and because it came out of Google. And I have to admit, I also kind of signed up for this uh, this idea because it does have value in defusing the whole conversation about planned downtime. You say, yes, uh, I'm going to have my planned downtime, but it's within the budget. And I've done various other things to avoid any possibilities. I'll blow the budget through unplanned downtime. And so you can have that conversation. But there was this um, a Twitter thread, which again, we'll link, very brief thread, it's only four tweets, and saying, you know, this kind of user hostile, though, because the, the budget that you're spending is user disservice and user dissatisfaction. And because this idea of error budget has become so widely adopted, we're kind of cavalier in the way that we spend that budget, and we kind of you have a use it or lose it mentality like we do with uh, dollar budgets. So I haven't blown all my budgets. I might as well do something potentially disruptive without always considering uh, what that means for users. 
And so I thought it was an interesting take from the point of view of internet services that are always online. What did uh, what did you all think? Did this ring any bells for anyone else, or is it just a me thing? Yeah, I'm not too. Yeah, I, I guess I'm not too familiar with the the whole kind of SRE way of working. Let's put it that way. Um, but isn't it just? I mean, you're going to increase customer satisfaction by removing a dissatisfaction. Isn't it the same the same way of thinking, or is the issue really like? Um, just going after more and more points that really won't add up to something. Is is that the, the gist of it, Dominic? Yeah, I mean, we'd have to have Colm on the show uh, to see if uh, he could expand on it a bit more than four tweets. But what he says is, you know, the word budget is interpreted as a certain amount of customer pain is something that you can spend, which, yes, when you phrase it that way, it, it doesn't sound great. Uh, he also talks about how it reinforces an us and them model. Uh, so the people on the inside running the service versus the users of the service. And he does admit, you know, resilient systems benefit from a certain amount of outage and this all chaos engineering that came out of Netflix and the chaos monkeys and whatnot. Uh, but encapsulating it as an error budget is perhaps not the uh, the best way of doing that. So really a change in terminology so that people uh, approach it a little differently than they do today. Yeah, that, that's that's the gist, right? Yeah, and I think it may be just yet another manifestation of the, if Google does it, it must be the best way of doing things. Whereas what Google is doing is at a scale and in a way that's not, is not applicable for almost anyone else uh, because they encapsulated all their services and so... When they say if there's an error budget, they mean an error budget for this little tiny thing that serves a bunch of other services which can each tolerate a temporary outage or slowdown of that one thing. Uh, whereas many people have taken the idea of error budget meaning as, oh, the site is down, which is a rather different thing. And so well, and maybe it's just that. Has, like years of goodwill built up, right? Like mm. with, we would we will happily hang out in Google Labs or whatever they call it now, like the, you know, their test stuff all day and not complain about anything because we're like, well, this is fun. Um, I, yeah. I feel like most organizations do not have that level of customer goodwill built up, regardless of what we in tech feel of Google, like the end users generally rely on it sort of without question. Yeah, but I think it's the, it's the choice of spend of money uh, and money and time. Because is it right for a small company? I mean, great, your thing stays up, but how about you improve you improve the garbage that you're building? That's that's the real <laughs> gist of it, right? <laughs> so so okay, it stays up, and and I think that's the whole the whole issue, right? And when you look at it at a at a bigger scale, it's like, all right, this it's available, you know, a hundred percent of the time. It does exactly what um, what people expect it to do, but is it really a a, a a great pro it, it doesn't serve at improving the product and potentially you're fixing something that yeah maybe you need to re-architect redesign yeah google sheets whatever yeah that, that's basically what i'm saying that uh or i think what i think colm is saying that this is something that we've kind of adopted unthinkingly and we don't need to throw it out we just need to reevaluate a little bit and apply it to contexts that aren't google just like chaos engineering applied wholesale outside the con the context of Netflix could have some yep. majorly bad outcomes. Yep, yep, I would agree there. <laughs> um, so let's have some quick hits of news. 
Uh, I mentioned WeWork when we were talking about uh, remote work and back to the office, and it turns out they are continuing to lose money. And so they had their Q1 results and they made 600 million, which sounds good. Uh, Unfortunately, they had costs of 2.6 billion. And so they're still losing 2 billion. And (laughs) that's not the sort of business that you can continue for very long. And it kind of maps with some of the other stories that we've seen this week about Uber and Lyft and Airbnb all raising their prices as VCs become less willing to fund the low prices and operation at a loss that they've been doing. I do wonder as WeWork are going in that direction. It would be ironic if right at the time that their business model is vindicated, they <laughs> are no longer around to take advantage of it. But uh, that would be not entirely unjustified given the amount of red flags around that company. Yeah, I think what they're what they're dealing with is um yeah, long real estate leases and, and so on and so forth. But I think in this new day and age the model probably works, but it doesn't make sense. I, I recently watched the the Hulu documentary and we work and let me tell you it was one crazy like it, it just I mean it, it's mind blowing how they uh how they burned through money, what they did, uh, the concepts that they came up with. And, and I don't know how it works long-term unless everybody adopts it. So, you know, I, I think co-working spaces have a place, but I think WeWork has taken it to a level that th- doesn't make sense for uh, for some of the smaller companies or, or smaller, let's say, people who want just a seat. Um, so it's just it's, it's just weird. And, and companies have been doing it for ages, right? Like here in the U.S., we have Regis. I, I would assume they're global. Yeah, yeah we I'm use Regis sure, a lot over here as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, WeWork just takes it to a whole other, uh, other level. And, and really, yeah, just out of this world kind of money spending, money burned. Um, but we'll see what, yeah, what, what we come out to in, in the new normal when, when we get back to working, yeah, which will probably be like in fall or so on. I think this is going to be regionalized. I mean, I read an article where parts of like Miami and Palm Beach, Florida, I mean, can't find workspace. I mean, people are just going crazy. Uh, I don't know if it's all the relocation from, you know, the Valley and New York and everything. I think it's the same thing in Austin, you know, parts of Texas, same thing. So, I mean, you know, here we are saying they're burning money, but is it any different than some of these tech companies that burn money? I think it's it's a great idea. And as a matter of fact, it might be part of the new norm. Maybe we don't have traditional offices. I know that there are a lot of organizations are shuttering HQ, you know, their headquarters or, or uh, you know, minimizing it. So I don't know. I don't know if we should be. Oh, yeah, I've said, I've said the same. I I just wonder whether WeWork is the right company to mm. do that. But yeah. some sort of flexibility is almost certainly required, which is the other link that I had on this topic. It's a thread by Stephen Sanofsky of Microsoft fame. Uh, by the way, if you've been reading his series on early Microsoft, it's fantastic. But in this thread, he's talking specifically about the organization of work and the office and how a lot of that came out of the Second World War and the people who theorized that they organized it along military lines because that was a large organization that they'd been part of that was successful. And so they replicated much of that thinking in the uh, you know mid-20th century U.S. corporation, which is the model we have worldwide these days. And so he's saying, you know, what will the new model be? The one quibble I would have would be exactly what you said, Zach, of what will the new normal be? But do we have to wait for the new normal to emerge for people who came of age during this time to build it? Or can we figure out something as a halfway house, at least, that we can do right now when we need it, while 
people get to the, the very best possible world of all worlds. It's different, though, based on industry. I, I don't think all industries will move to the same model, right? I think it's really going to vary by industry. But I think to the, like, if you think of Miami, Austin, like what's happening there where people are converging, I think there is a sense of community, right? Whether that community is work, outside of work or whatever, like great minds want to be together. They want to kind of do this, you know, um, you know, come up with ideas, stir the pot together. And I think that's what we're seeing in, in some of these places where we're seeing a, a convergence of people, let's say. So yeah, it'll continue to happen, but it won't be based around a company anymore. That's the way I see it going. And yeah, you you, you could see it in, in the social networks and, and so on and so forth of what's happening. But there is like, it doesn't work for all industries. That is absolutely for sure. I think there's a dynamic there, though, if you brought like let's pretend a WeWork or we or shared collaboration space across multiple companies in certain markets, in certain industries, there's a, and, and that's true both in the Valley and in India and in China. And it like, it just depends on the region. There's places where in particular, the, the newest generation of developers or, or, or staff are basically using their work context as much as a social network as anything else. And I think when we think back to when we were 25 years old, that was much more the way that we behaved than it is today. Today, if I have a few that's the work, model of the Google office that you raised before. Right. It's so nice that's you don't exactly want to leave. Right. But here's the problem, or maybe not the problem, but the challenge that I think organizations are going to face. If all of these next-gen employees are hanging out with their peers from other organizations, what is expected of you as an employer is going to be litigated every day. So if somebody gets a holiday off and you don't give that holiday off, that is known. And like, not just known through like, like grumblings on the internet, but like literally your friend isn't going to be at the office. Um, or if, you know, benefits are different or if the way a manager manages is different. The, I think that the side-by-side -side comparison of employment options becomes significantly easier if you're letting everybody like truly work together while working for different companies. And I think the impact of that is going to have to really raise the bar on the way that people manage these teams. The companies aren't in control anymore. It's really the employees. I think that's, that's right. what it, that, that's what it's really coming down to, where um, you, you had people unionized to get their way with companies. Well, now it's now it's free markets, right? And I, I think employees will start to uh, move around a little easier. Um, they won't question it. And I, I think, you know, I, I've said it before, I think loyalty is a bit dead, right? The, the time of our generation when people work, you know, 20, 30 years for a company, I think that's going to come to an end and we're going to see less and less of that. Why? Because people will treat their careers like an enterprise and like we have mergers and acquisitions and divestitures, they will join, leave and uh, and move from companies in ways that we've never seen before. Um, you know, they've taken away pensions, some of these long term benefits, so on and so forth. So people need to make that themselves. And however they make that, if they're going to be entrepreneurial and have their own thing and consult or if they're going to work for a company, well, they will have the choice and they will make that choice. And I think companies need to change their image to attract, like, what's the best employee, if you want the best employee, or you're going to mix it up. It, it all depends. But I think people are in the driver's seat for the first time in a long time. I don't think everybody realizes how much they're in the driver's seat right now. That's going to be an interesting transition. And yes, I agree. We've seen the beginnings of that with the Basecamp story that we've discussed or with the Apple, the various Apple open letters from employees. And Apple, an example of a very historically uh, in the office work company. And they just built this wonderful new campus. They better come and work in it. 
and so opening up to remote work is very significant and is only probably happening because of those outside conversations that Apple people are having uh, with uh, with other employees of other companies. And I think to Mike's point, Mike, what you're saying resonates, right? You're, uh, people have the employees have the power because of this this tight labor market. Resources are at a premium, so maybe they feel empowered because of that. But it, it doesn't matter. These organizations, these companies are going to have to, if they want to recruit them, they're going to have to cater to them. And and you know. Um, whether that's remote work, hybrid, whatever that is, I think that's what you're getting at, Mike, right? Absolutely. And I think what I hear from people is like people have been working from home and like a lot of people don't want to go back to an office. Like you have both. You have some people want to go into an office and see their colleagues every once in a while. You have people want to go back in every day and you have people who do not want to go in. They're really happy being at home or wherever they are in the world working. And, um, you know, now it's like, okay, how do we make this uh, this all work? I, I think it's uh, there's a balance there, and I think companies need to need to understand that. And if they put like these hard targets and hard lines, I, I think it will, you, you know, it will force a choice by employers. Where I think in the past, employer like employees would just follow the employer. I think now the employees ask themselves, okay, well, I have a choice. If I don't want to do this, I'll just go work someplace else. And I think the tight labor market gives them a choice to, to make that happen. And they'll, they'll walk over to someplace somewhere else that will give them that. Um, it's not so much always, it always used to be a function of, of salary, but I think now it's a bit different. I think it's, people are, are taking a lot more, a lot more variables into their discussion. I mean, people are looking at, how companies are doing from a, a social standpoint, what their mission is, and uh, and and they're refusing to join some some companies, right? So, yeah, that that's that's also a challenging part for a lot of organizations. Like, what's our mission? We need to make it, you know, really heard by a lot of people. Uh, it's like people who don't want to go work for like uh, Amazon or Google or Facebook because they don't believe in those in, in those missions, right? But yeah, yeah, I mean. It is what it is, and and this is what's happening across industry today. I think I agree. So we have one more link in the show notes as I want to share. So let me try for a double Black Diamonds transition with a kickflip and a nose grab. So we've been talking about ransomware a fair amount. I think it's now common knowledge that ransomware is getting very sophisticated. Ransomware operators have call centers to help walk you through buying Bitcoin and whatever if you, you're not able to do that yourself. Well, now it turns out that there's a whole new ecosystem of jobs emerging around ransomware where third parties unrelated to the ransomware criminals uh, will negotiate between the customers and the ransomware people. So let's say someone comes to you, I have all your data, it's encrypted, give me 200 grand in Bitcoin to give you your data back. And these people will go back and negotiate with the criminals and say, hey, what if I give you 100 grand and then come back to you and say, look, I'd knock them down to 150 and they'll pocket the 50 grand difference, which I think is just fascinating. It's uh, apparently a concept in Australia. It's always Australia somehow called the standover man, which is a criminal who extorts other criminals. <laughs> this is like that for cyber criminals. It's, it's wonderful. I thought we just used to call that a consultant. I, I'm, I'm <laughs> I love it. Getting I punched. A myself, so. uh, <laughs> but I, but I some think of my best uh, friends no, are lawyers, and I don't trust them. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's no different than like uh, you know some of the you know consultants that will fix some uh, some tough uh, 
issues for certain organizations. I, I think it's always existed and yeah, how right or wrong or... Um, oh yeah, no, no. So the, to be clear, this isn't a legit uh, role. So the way this emerged was a company had contracted one of these legit negotiators to go in and have the conversation with the criminals. And when they went in, they found someone was already in there negotiating that was not officially contracted. So these are complete fly-by-night operators. I, I, I love that that aspect of it. They're like bounty hunters. Oh, so you, hunters. Just, you just inject yourself in the conversation <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and negotiate. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's, I, I love the, the entrepreneurial spirits, let's say. <laughs> but um, So that's all the news we had this week. We do have a couple of recommendations. Uh, I've watched the Love, Death, and Robots Volume 2 on Netflix. If you missed Volume 1, you can also scroll back and get that. These are short, like really short, like five, six minutes, uh, sci-fi-tinged animations. It's definitely adult-oriented, uh, lots of violence, gore, adult themes in general, uh, but the animations are all different, lots of big names involved in the stories, the writing uh, for those, and they're just very, very entertaining quick hits uh, that I highly recommend. What did the rest of you have to recommend? Lilac, you dropped something in here. I did. I actually had a Netflix show that made me think of, of this podcast as I was watching a particular episode. The show is Grace and Frankie, and it's uh, hysterical, but not um, particularly technical in nature. It's about two women uh, in a post-divorce world. Their husbands ran off together. Um, and it's Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin. So it's, you know, a very um, a seasoned cast and, a, and an older um cast which is kind of refreshing but there's a moment where the where the lily tomlin character gets an, a new mac and like literally doesn't know where the on button is and calls tech support and at some point um the tech support person like two minutes in is like oh oh i get it and passes her on to like a completely different person who's like hi i'm mark let's talk and she literally builds like this like multi-day relationship with mark who hears all about her kids and also teaches her how to tweet and like, it's just days and days and days of tech support and i thought wow <laughs> what a completely different model that sounds amazing we could all use that <laughs> we all need mark yeah how about you two mike zach any recommendations this week I will go back to WeWork. I think if uh, you have the time, uh, Hulu has a great uh, We documentary. It's a uh, great time. Damn it, Mike, and, you just blew uh, our Netflix sponsorship slot. We're uh, there. <laughs> I apologize. Yeah, there. Uh, maybe Hulu will come and Disney then, and and then it'll be great. Yeah. Uh, but it's great. And then I always uh, now refer to adjusted everything because they talk about like how uh, they were measuring adjusted EBITDA. And I, I talk now about adjusted KPIs and adjusted numbers and yeah, everything. The world looks lovely when you look at it through adjusted numbers. So yeah. Yeah. yeah my adjusted uh, King of the thing. Mountain scores are amazing. Yeah. <laughs> great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I don't have anything this week, but I will come next week with something. These recommendations are great though. So I'm, uh, I'm going to check out that, uh, that we work uh, documentary that you're talking about, Mike. That sounds interesting. We we might join a community, Zach, and then yeah, the the world will never be the same. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> well, that's a pretty much a wrap. Thank you all for listening to the show once again. Uh, please do follow us on Twitter at Roll for Enterprise or on the LinkedIn page, which is linked in the show notes. The theme music for the show is by my good friend Renato Podesta. Please get in touch if you have any suggestions for future topics, future guests, or sponsorships, especially if you're Netflix. And with that, we will talk to you all next week. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. Thank you.
Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, everyone.